0: Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors and we are beginning a new sermon series this morning over the next five weeks called Barriers to Belief. And so I'm glad you're here. Uh, Whoever you are, if you've been here for a long time, if this is your first or second time as a guest, uh, we're really, really glad you're here. However you come into this place, I know everybody's cold and ready for spring, so I know we all have that in common. Uh, So I'm glad you're here. Uh, on the inside of our bulletin, you will see uh, our vision, what, what we believe God has called us to be a part of here in this city of Durham, why we exist. And it says that we exist for the glory of God and for the good of Durham. God has planted us, Christ Central, in the heart of Durham to seek the welfare and the flourishing of this city, which means if we want to do that, we have to be listening to all people of Durham, listening to the needs and the hopes and the dreams of all of Durham if we want to seek the good of this city. And that's a hard task, but it's something we take very seriously and pray will be a reality for us. Durham as a city is roughly 275,000 people, roughly, Uh, People are moving in every month as well, so the population is growing. And according to our last census, around 72% of Durhamites consider themselves as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, when it comes to religion. Close to 200,000 people unaffiliated with religion. In our country and in our city, there has been a rise in nuns. Pew Research in 2016 put out an article titled, Exodus, Why Americans Are Leaving Religion and Why They Are Unlikely to Come Back. The number one cause of unaffiliation is a lack of belief in the teaching of religion. Close to 40% of young adults ages 18 through 29 are religiously none, unaffiliated, versus 13% of people who are 65 years and older which means religious unaffiliation is only going to increase in the coming years in our country and in Durham. Now, I just have to throw this out, out there as a sign of hope that nuns around the world, N-O-N-E-S, are actually in decline. There's places like Asia and Africa, the Church of Jesus Christ is exploding and expanding But Christ Central Church, Church, we find it our task to love and engage this city and to help those of you love and engage this city. So we're starting this series called Barriers to Belief. We're calling it Barriers to Belief because barriers are something that get in the way from moving forward. Removing a barrier does not mean that you have moved forward much less that you've arrived to a final destination. It merely allows for the journey to happen. And the reality is that all of us have questions. All of us have barriers that can barricade and block our spiritual journey. Christians ask questions. Non-Christians ask questions. So our hope in this series is that we might equip those of you who are Christians, that are asking questions, that we might engage those of you who are skeptical and searching with your questions, and that we might engage all of us who have friends and family that are asking questions. Now, I have to admit that I'm both excited and anxious about this series. I'm excited because I want our church, I want Christ Central to engage our city, to engage our culture. We should never retreat from culture. And the church in Durham seems to be losing ground and losing voice with the people of its city, and it breaks my heart. I'm also anxious because I know I and Timothy, as we preach through this series, are not going to answer every question we're doing five weeks. We're going to miss things. We're going to leave things out. And we are far from claiming to be leading scholars and philosophers on many of these issues. We simply want to be faithful to engage our city and equip you, the church, and we believe this series will aid us in accomplishing this goal. So we're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to read God's word to us this morning from Luke chapter 18. Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you come and you speak to us. You bring The scriptures to life so that our minds might understand your truth, our hearts might be aflamed and affected and our lives and the way we walk and live might be changed. Would you speak to us, remove me, would Christ be exalted? I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. The barrier that I want to address this morning is this. If Christianity is true, why is there so much hypocrisy and injustice and oppression within the church? If Christianity is true, how can this be? I can remember being in college, having a group of people try to convince me of their beliefs according to the Bible. They would invite me into their room and open up the Bible and point out passages trying to persuade me about their beliefs. But you know what dissuaded me? The way they lived their lives. I didn't see them loving people. I didn't see them caring for those in need. I didn't see sacrificial living and generosity. They could talk, 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 but their living spoke louder than their words. Gandhi's famous saying still rings true for many people today. I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The bumper sticker that maybe you've seen says the same thing. Dear Jesus, save us from your followers. Many people pull away from Christianity because they see the lives of Christians. And not only uh, do the lives of Christians not look any different from their own, but often the lives of Christians are hypocritical. The hypocrisy can be seen on an individual level and a corporate level. Individuals whose lives don't match their beliefs, what they say, it's seen in a lack of character and fanaticism, which we're going to look at. And the hypocrisy on a corporate level is seen within the church as an institution and its involvement in injustice and oppression. I'm grateful for many people who I've been learning from and have learned from and borrowed from in preparing for this series. And one of them is Tim Keller, and he uses three categories to talk about this hypocrisy within the church. Three categories that he uses, war slash violence, Two is character. Three is fanaticism. So we're going to use these categories to understand the hypocrisy often within the church. Let's look first at war slash violence. Tim Keller mentions Christopher Hitchens, who was a leading secular scholar, uh, intellect, called himself an anti-theist, authored the book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Hitchens argues that religion leads to violence. In his chapter, Religion Kills, he gives account of how religion has fueled violence all over the world. He argues that religion takes racial and cultural differences and aggravates them. It's a fair point by Hitchens. Religion can make ordinary cultural differences ultimate, which leads to two sides in conflict until it boils over into some type of violence. Some people have and do use God's will as a way to sanction violence. That's what happened with Christianity and the Crusades and the African slave trade and many Christians who defended 400 years of slavery. The militaristic Japanese empire grew out of a culture influenced by Buddhism. Islam is the soil for much of today's terrorism. Hindu nationalists, in the name of their religion, carry out violent strikes on Christian churches. So again, I think this is a fair and accurate critique of Hitchens. But I would say that religion may be the occasion for violence, but not the root cause, nor the trigger of violence. If we were to rid the world of religion, do you think we'd have peace? I don't think so. Because the root cause is the human heart and our heart's propensity toward hostility. Before there were monotheistic religions, the belief in one God, religions like Judaism and Islam and Christianity, the world was marred by cruelty and violent death. And can you guess the number of people killed by communist regimes, countries that oppose religion, just in the 20th century? The number of people killed in the 20th century by communist regimes? 100 million people. Even when God is gone, the human heart and therefore countries will make something else ultimate which will lead to violence and conflict. Here's the second category, character. The charge against Christians in the church is a lack of character, and this is also understandable. Because Christian leaders have moral failure just like world leaders. i heard too many stories of people who have left the church because they've been hurt by the moral failure of a church leader. And I know many who, by God's grace, have stayed in the church despite being hurt, by the moral failure of a church leader. Just this week, I was talking to someone who's been attending our church, and they were trying to love on a person who was in distress, having a very difficult time. And this person in distress had grown up in the church, but had pulled away from faith and from the church because uh, in the teen years, this person's church went through a split due to an accusation of moral failure against the senior pastor. Many churches, there's more fighting than there is unity. And on top of this, there are many irreligious, non-unaffiliated people whose lives are more moral than many Christians. I guarantee you, everyone in this room could rattle off multiple names of people that are irreligious, that are extremely warm and caring and generous much more so than many Christians. So if Christianity is true, why is this the case? There are two things that we need to understand that are important from the Bible. The first is this. Every single person is created in the image of God. Every person. Sin has not marred God's image completely in every person. Every person still bears the image of God. The second thing is, it's from James 1, through uh, James chapter 1, verse 17. God gifts all people, all people. God spreads his gifts among all people, no matter ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic class. And these gifts are things like the family you grew up in, the environment someone's experienced, the opportunities you've had the uh, experiences you've had, and all of these things are used by God to shape a person's character. Gifting of gifts from God is known as common grace. God spreads his common grace on all people, and character is produced through many things that we've had no control over. Let me say this, just because something looks good on the outside does not mean we know what's going on in the inside. The outside is not always an indicator of the interior. And this leads me to Luke 18, the passage that I read, this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, two very different people with very different responses to Jesus. And this story should bother most of us. This. They knew the law Dedicated to the heart of their life Check net worth every year Check I mean, this man, this Pharisee had character He is the one who utters the prayer Thank God I'm not like other men. While the tax collector, one of the most despised in the culture, profited from his neighbor's uh, expense. And Jesus says that the, the tax collector who utters, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is the one who goes home justified and righteous. The point of this story from Jesus is not that the Pharisees need to add a little Modesty to their life. It's saying because of the put-togetherness, the outward religious, cultural success, that this is why the person is lost and does not see their need for Jesus. Are you following me? The character of the Pharisee is the day of coming to Jesus. Much more so than the vices of the tax collector. The tax collector owns his vices and knows he needs Jesus. The Pharisee reveals to all of us the scales to justify define ourselves over and against other people. Those whose lives are a fiercely fiercely pious their own. It can be through someone being self-righteous politically who thinks that the the left or the right just don't get it. It can be through the self-righteous activist who is socially conscious and think that people who are not engaging in certain things in certain ways are less than the self-righteousness. Did you, see, did you see in verse 9 how Jesus describes the religious? They trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. See who Jesus is talking to in this story? To the church. This is a parable of an indictment on the church. Jesus is saying he doesn't want to put put together people, but humble people, people that pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God doesn't want good people. He wants new people who know they need Jesus, who come to him and allow Jesus to rule, not just part of their lives, but their entire life. Does character matter to God? Sure it does. But what God measures It's not our put-togetherness, but if we've surrendered our hearts to Jesus because we know we're desperate sinners in need of His grace. Someone who prays the great prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is growing and is being changed in their character while the one who looks at others and thinks herself or himself better is only solidifying their self-righteousness. God looks at the heart. and The question is, is your life under his lordship? Have you surrendered everything to him for this will change your life? The third category, fanaticism. I think this might be the biggest issue for many non-Christians. People who are born again, those who have fallen off the deep end and are fanatical according to their religion. There was a Huffington Post article that came out in November of 2017 titled, Exposing America's Biggest Hypocrites, Evangelical Christians. Subtitle, It's Okay to Pray, P-R-E-Y, as long as you pray, P-R-A-Y was an article on how many evangelicals were supporting Roy Moore in the Alabama Senate race, a man who was charged with praying on 14-year-old girls. Listen to some of the article. Ah, Christianity in America. Or should I say, the single greatest cause of atheism today. You know who I'm talking about, right? The type of people who acknowledge Jesus with their words and deny him through their lifestyle the ones who preach the importance of traditional family values, all while holding a rally and offering standing ovations for a man who prayed on 14-year-old girls. Many people today hear evangelical Christian, and they think pro-war, hate LGBTQ community, suspicious of culture, which is why I don't even like using the word evangelical anymore. It's lost its meaning. It is equal in many people's minds with extreme right conservative politics. People will look at the church and they'll say that they go way too far with their Christianity. People are taking it way too serious. Everyone just needs a little moderation. And my response to this is the problem is not taking Christianity too far. It's making Christianity and politics equal. It's dangerous for any side politically to claim equivalence with Christianity, right, middle, or left. If you become extreme or fanatic in this way, I wonder if you're in a living relationship with the Jesus of the Bible because he speaks in a way that's not politically liberal or conservative. He rebukes every single one of us. When we read the Bible, we see Jesus, a Messiah, who preaches that he who has the power to will not abolish the law, who pays taxes and encourages supporting the government, seems pretty conservative. But then we see a Savior who turns around and he heals the sick on the Sabbath. He touches the unclean and he challenges the status quo almost daily with his progressive ideas and the company he keeps. And it seems pretty liberal for his time. The critique of fanaticism of being too serious I don't think is the proper critique. The Bible is the outside the Jeremiah and Amos and as we see this morning Jesus rebuked God's people. Karl Marx, a German philosopher whose views gave rise to Marxism, socialism, which holds to atheism, the belief in no God, is known for indicting Christians because of their lack of care for the poor. It was a constant critique Marx had. In some way, again, I think, true. But as one scholar noted, in Marx's critique, He's plagiarizing. He's plagiarizing from Old Testament prophets, Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, all who rebuke God's people for not caring for the poor. And James in the New Testament, who says true religion is caring for the poor, the widow and the orphan and the outcast. And so let me say this to you. If your theology is not a lived theology, watch out. We are in danger of being just like the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray, but whose heart was far from God. If your heart is humble and undone by the mercy of God like the tax collector, you will find yourself justified before God and as a result, leading a life of love, especially for those on the margins of society. I recently heard Tim Keller say this. How do you know you've really been born again, that phrase? You care about the poor. When you see people without resources, your heart goes out to them. If it doesn't, maybe you're saved, but you're lacking the evidence of salvation. Justification leads to justice. Justice is the sign of justification. It's all through the Bible. See, the not committed. Don't allow the grace of righteousness. When, when God's grace grips our hearts, we will lead lives of radical grace and sacrifice to those in our city and in the world. And the church has failed in many ways by having right doctrines, right beliefs, but not. All, a lived theology that seeks justice and mercy. But the church has at times been a people so gripped by God's grace that they fight for justice and mercy for all people. Let me give you a few examples. The abolitionist movement. It's a movement that abolished slavery. A lot of resources from within Christianity helped fight for this. Now, there were many inside the church who did not, and the Bible rebukes them. The Civil Rights Movement. Many scholars would say it wasn't a political movement, but a religious movement. Martin Luther King Jr., who this past week we remembered his, the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Martin Luther King Jr. fought for the rights of people of color because of his biblical theology. Do you remember who Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail was addressed to? If you have read it? Addressed to the church, particularly the white church, who did not live up to the biblical ideal of justice and mercy for all God's people created in his image, but were a church that talked and talked and talked with no action. Take apartheid in South Africa. Everyone expected a bloodbath as apartheid came to an end, black and white South Africans living together. But Christian leaders set up the South African Commission of Truth and Reconciliation, invited victims to come forward to tell their stories, also invited perpetrators of oppression to come and ask for amnesty and forgiveness. Let me close by telling you a a true story from apartheid South Africa. There was an unknown woman and a police officer named Vanderbrook who came before the court and before this commission. And the police officer began to confess his, his crimes, how he had sinned against this woman. He stood up, and the first thing he said was, I am the man. I am the man. I am the police officer who took your son and shot him. And then took him outside and burned him at a stake. I did that. And then eight years later I came back to your house and I knew and we took your husband. But he was alive and we found found him him tires. Did that speak first take me to the side of the burn. Lay him to rest properly. I'm still young. And I, you've taken my husband and my son from me. So two days and two days every month. I want you to be my son and let me love you. Third thing is I want you to know that I forgive you. And I believe God will forgive you. But that's between you and God. You have to do business with God. You can't forgive yourself and I can't forgive you on God's behalf. You have to talk to God, but I forgive you. And to express my tangible forgiveness, I want you to walk across this courtroom so that I can embrace you. And the courtroom records say that Vanderbrook stood up And fainted at this lavish expression of grace. And the entire courtroom broke out into the song Amazing Grace. There is often bad news coming out of the church. It's not all fake news. But there is a tremendous amount of good done in the name of Jesus. And much of it will never be known. Ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things because they've been radically changed by the grace of Christ. Can you imagine someone who gives mother love to a man who killed her beloved son? Sounds a lot like the gospel of Christianity to me. A God who gives unending love and grace to a people who killed his one and only son. And all that is needed is for you and for us to allow him to embrace us. And for you to embrace him, that is a scandalous grace. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What a good and right prayer. May we pray it, and may it lead us to live lives that match our words. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would change us, humble us, that we would see your lavish grace, your unending love that abounds to us, that our lives would be different as a result. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name.